Hi, it's Jasmine. You know, that girl who did you know what way before the internet ever existed. Join me and my special guest every week as we talk about anything and everything because nothing is too taboo. So punch your ticket and get on board the crazy train with me, Jasmine Saint Clair. All aboard! Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm really excited to have you on here. Um, I've never heard of someone getting that many years for LSD until I learned about you, which is really interesting. Now, how did that whole thing come about? Like, why did you decide to choose LSD as a choice of drug to sell? I think, you know, I, I started out smoking weed uh, real early, like around 13. And, um, you know, to me, I, I was kind of like in that, you know, weed kind of LSD hippie counterculture. So it, it was kind of just like the next evolution for me. You know, I experimented with weed, then mushrooms, and, and then I got into LSD. I think really a lot of times with drugs, um, I mean, there's two ways you can go. I mean, people kind of go that more, you know, mind opening spiritual route, you know, with, with cannabis, you know, mushrooms and LSD. And then there's a the more hardcore you know, world where people get into meth, you know, cocaine, you know, even heroin. So, you know, I was kind of on that other side of the fence. And uh, really by about age 15, you know, um, I, I was a big supporter of, of psychedelics, not only because it expanded my own mind, but I, I just believe, you know, I kind of believe in the whole thing, you know, kind of like from the late 60s, you know, maybe if, if everybody took a, a hit of LSD in the world, I mean, maybe we might have world peace or something. That's not, such, that's not such a bad idea, actually. The only thing is the first time I ever took acid was definitely my last because I thought there was graffiti coming to life on a phone booth, which is pretty scary. What was growing up like for you? Did you look up to a lot of like gangsters? Were you reading a lot of stories about things like that? Yeah, I think first I was kind of like into the, the rock star thing. You know, I, I was kind of like into dudes like, you know, Jim Morrison. I was a big punk rock fan. So I like people like Henry Rollins. Then, you know, the late 80s, I was like a huge, you know, Guns N' Roses, glam metal, you know, like Axl Rose, Motley Crue, rap bands like that. So, um, but, you know, from from kind of that angle, you know, then watching the movies like like The Godfather, Goodfellas, you know, and plus, you know, I got I'm, I'm I got an Italian last name. So I kind of knew about that stuff a little bit, you know, not like my family was all military, so they weren't involved in that. But, you know, with the movies, you know, you have that whole romanticism too so it was kind of like an extension you know but for, first I was into the music I was really into the rock star thing I, I used to sing in bands and play guitar and then you know that kind of you know extended it into the whole kind of uh, mafia mob counterculture you know outlaw type of thing what kind of guitar did you have a Fender a BC Rich no no I had a, a Stratocaster that's yeah, pretty yeah. classic. That's awesome. What was your favorite yeah. Guns N' Roses album? I I like the first, like live like a suicide. You know that first uh, four song EP before before Appetite. Mm -hmm. So I mean, I remember I got that like in '87, and there was probably I think I don't know it was maybe like ten or twenty thousand. They said they pressed, you know, and they did that after they signed their record deal. And um, yeah, I bought that, and I love that album. You know, it had uh, you know, it had like uh. 
Reckless Life and uh, it had Mama Kim by Errol Smith and a couple other songs. But then, uh, yeah, Appetite, you know, kind of set the stage for Appetite. And really, you know, that whole scene, which uh, it was weird because like when Guns N' Roses came out, they were like glam, but they were like a harder glam, you know, as as compared to like Rat, you know, and all those other bands that kind of came out before them from the Sunset Strip. Motley Crue? Yeah, I love, I love, I love, I love Motley Crue. Motley Crue came out pretty heavy, but then the the glam stuff, you know, as, as the '80s went on, like '86, '87, you know, really kind of got uh, it got really glam. And then I think Guns and Roses, when they came out, they kind of brought that hard edge to the glam metal back. Well, I think that whole appetite for destruction says a lot because that definitely describes LA, and it definitely, I think, it describes life just in general, especially these days. It's like a struggle to stay alive and like you're going to go out there and do whatever the hell it is that you have to to stay alive and it was the, i like the album cover and i just like the inside of the album where they had all the photos of them sort of sprawled out across the sunset strip like from booze and whatever else they were doing was that your first concert or no i think um you know, I'd seen a lot of the, the in the early 80s, you know, bands like, uh, you know, I grew up in Southern California. So I remember seeing bands like they were kind of before glam. They were kind of like that between the 70s rock and the glam, like Y&T. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. So I, I, I saw, I, I think Y&T might have actually been one of my first concerts. But then, you know, I saw like Van Halen pretty early on, you know, before, before Jump, you know, and the Panama and that album came out. And, uh, you know, then it was then it was like boom, right, right, like when Motley Crue, Motley Crue and Rat were probably two of my favorite favorite bands. You know, like around eighty four, eighty five. That's awesome. Yeah, those were. I like the album covers back then. They were so much cooler. I actually had Steve Weiss on the show recently. Who shot Mark Weiss? Who shot who shot a lot of the um, album covers back then? Now, when you decided to start dealing LSD, I mean, that must have been such a bold choice to make in life, like. What really, what pushed you to that? Was it just a certain lifestyle you wanted to have? Was it the money? Like, what was it? Yeah, def it definitely wasn't the money because I, I really didn't make that a lot of money off LSD. For me, it was more like the the, the, the righteous thing because I, I was in like the, you know, the cannabis kind of psychedelic counterculture. And I just felt, you know, like, like people, you know, had the right to expand their mind if they wanted. So it, it really came with me. It really came from like a, a really righteous, you know, part of me where I was like, man, people deserve this. And also, I remember when I first started uh, getting like when I wanted to take LSD, sometimes like you had to take like you had to pay like 15, 20 dollars a hit, you know, like the mid 80s. And I, I was like, man, this is ridiculous. Like this, this is so expensive, you know, so I was like, you know, kind of I developed the contacts, you know, I actually I started following the Grateful Dead you know, probably like around 80, 87, 88 too. I started going on tour and um, I developed the contacts for LSD. And then that was kind of like my thing. We'd actually moved to the East Coast by then, you know, by the time I was a sophomore in high school. And uh, yeah, I was just like, just like weed and LSD, man. I just kind of wanted to spread it out to everybody and give everybody an opportunity to kind of try this. I always tell people now, you know, I tell them I was a cannabis and a psychedelic activist. You know, I was just about 30 years ahead of my time. That's awesome. I love that. That's the best term I've ever heard, a psychedelic activist. I wonder if we may have crossed paths at that time, because I was in New York around then going to those shows like in the late 80s. But obviously I dropped the acid like a couple of years before. 
which is just the worst thing ever. I haven't done it since then. Um, but yeah, I be you, here. About you know it. what they say, what they say about LSD though, right? Uh-huh. It's all about set and setting. So first, first set, the set part is like your mindset. So they, you know, cause when you take LSD, you can only focus on one or two things. So if you're like in a, a, a bad headspace, you know, like if you just broke up, you know, with a boyfriend or girlfriend or, or, you know, you have some type of drama going on in your life or you're feeling depressed, you're not supposed to take LSD because that's how bad trips happen. So that's the first, it's called, you know, the set, the mindset. The second part is called setting. You know, that's like where you're at. You know, a lot of people like to do it and go to Grateful Dead concerts. But to me, I mean, I always thought that was kind of pretty chaotic, you know, taking LSD at a concert. I would prefer to do it like, you know, go out in the woods, go hiking, go camping, you know, be out in nature. So I, I think that's a lot of things when people do have bad trips, you know, you, you got to look at that, you know, like what was your mindset when you took it? What were you focused on? You know, what was going on in your life? And also you got to think of the setting, like where did you take it? I mean, like, I mean, me personally, I wouldn't take LSD and go to like a Metallica concert. I mean, <laughs> you know, if, if you think, a, you know, Grateful Dead concert is, is pretty chaotic on LSD. Imagine, you know, Metallica or like a metal band you know, or something like that, you know, so that, that's a big thing. It's, it's, and you got to control the dosage and plus a lot in the eighties, man, people were putting out like a bad LSD, you know, they used to cut it with different things to kind of make it so they could make more blotter paper. And if, you know, if you, if you get the right, if you get the right kind of the pure LSD, you know, right from the chemist, it's laid properly on the blotter acid, or if it's on a liquid, and then, you know, you have the right mindset and you're in the right setting and you're with people that can kind of guide you on the trip. You know, it can be a lot of better experience because uh, yeah, I've known a lot of people, you know, because you can't just rely a lot of drug dealers. You know, they're just selling drugs for money. So, you know, they're going to tell you whatever, like how much you take. Oh, you take this or you do this. They don't even know how many micrograms. You know, when you first start out, you should probably only take like 25 or 50 micrograms, which is kind of what they call like a. a you know, like a disco trip or a disco hit. It's like a real mild, you know, if you're taking like a hundred or 250 mics, you know, on your first hit and you're not in the right mindset or with the right people, you can't, you can't have a bad trip. You know, that's why a lot of people have had bad experiences just from bad advice from the people selling it because they're not selling it, you know, for the spiritual or, or therapeutical, therapeutical or medicinal value. They're selling it because they want to make money. Well, oddly enough, the guy that gave me the hit of acid, it was on this clown. It was, a, it was a clown space. We went to see the Rush Laser Show, Laser Zeppelin. Everything was fine. His name was Seth, by the way. That was the whole irony of this. And uh, now I know why the bad trip happened. I have to call, I had to call my mother and make up some excuses to why I was out so late. So that's why the graffiti came to life and was like screaming at me. And I went running down the street. Um, but 25 years is quite a long time. And you definitely made a lot for yourself in that time. And I think a lot of people fail to understand that not only do you do the time, but your family does the time as well. And how did your parents react to this? Did you have a close relationship with them? Yeah, I think at first, you know, um, cause I was a fugitive for two years too. So I, I, I kind of took off and I didn't have any contact with them for a minute, but, uh, you know, I, I kind of damaged that relationship as a teenager. Cause ever since, you know, I was like 13, I was kind of like, fuck you. I'm going to do what I want. You know, I, I really had that that whole, uh, you know, kind of outlaw 
you know, rock star rebellion thing, you know, from, from the eighties, you know, the eighties, it was before, you know, in the nineties, like Nirvana, Nirvana came around and it was all about the angst and this and that, you know, the eighties was different. The eighties people, you know, we were bold and brash. I, I tell people all the time now, like I say, man, you guys missed it. You know, like all these kids, I go, you missed the eighties was when it was really happening. You know what I'm saying? Cause life was a lot different than pre-internet, but, uh, yeah, definitely, man. I, I was just, uh, I felt like this was something, you know, that, that people needed, you know, and, and, and I wanted to supply it. So I, I kind of jumped out there and, um, the whole thing with my parents, I, you know, because of all that, I kind of, uh, you know, I was like the, the proverbial, you know, rebel without a cause, except, you know, I did have a cause in a way because, you know, I wanted to be outlaw in the counterculture and LSD. So I really alienated myself from my parents. And it took, it took several years, you know, I took probably, you know, the first three to five years in prison to kind of repair that relationship. And mostly I did that by, uh, you know, cause both, both my parents had master's degrees, you know, and they were really big into education. They always pushed me into education. And so when I got in prison, I, I started taking college courses, you know, and then I would send, you know, like my reports, you know, I was getting like, you know, 4.0 grade point averages, straight A's and everything. Cause that's the only thing I was focused on. And I, I was drug free for the first time in a long time. And I was sending all that stuff to him and that kind of helped, you know, re repair the, repair the uh, relationship and, and, you know, kind of get that, um, you know, kind of relationship back with him. Interesting. But it took a minute. Yeah, it took a minute. The only other person I knew of that was a fugitive for a while was John Roberts, a cocaine cowboy. What were you doing when you were a fugitive? Like, Am I allowed to ask that? Like, where did you go? Like, what did you really think it was going to last forever? Like you look at a, t a movie like the crypto King right now. I, I don't even know if he's alive. I think he's alive, but that's just me. And like, you're here telling me that you're a fugitive for two years. How did you do it? Like, how do you get money and where do you go that no one's going to snitch you out? <laughs> yeah, basically um, I cut off contact with pretty much every, everybody I knew. Um, I, well, first off what I did is I, I faked my death. So uh, I made it seem like I committed suicide. You know, like I jumped into the, the Potomac River and these class five rapids and um, that didn't last. So because after like two weeks of the prosecutors in Northern Virginia called, you know, declared my suicide was a hoax. But I, I had a little bit of money. I had about uh, 25 grand. So I actually went out. I actually went out to L.A. And at first I was staying on uh, on a military base up in, uh, you know, Point Magoo you know, with like, like a girlfriend and I was staying like right with her parents, you know, at her house. And, you know, that lasted for a little bit, but, you know, it was kind of stressful because, you know, her parents didn't really know the same situation and, and the girl did, you know, so it, it only lasted about three months. And so I ended up, I rented a place in Hollywood. I just rented a room in Hollywood and I, I spent like six months, like right in Hollywood, like, you know, down on the strip, you know, sunset, you know, playing ball down on Santa Monica, you know, walking up and down Hollywood. But, it, you know, it only it lasted about six months because I, I spent all that money I had. You know, I was still kind of living, you know, like I was at like that drug dealer rock star. But, you know, I didn't have any money coming in. So, you know, that after six months, that money evaporated really quickly. And I ended up going back to uh, Texas where I had like some some Mexican contacts that I could get weed from. And, um, you know, I went there and that's pretty much I, I started selling weed again, first in Texas. And then I started taking loads of weed up to Missouri, St. Louis, Missouri, where I could make like a much bigger profit. You know, it's about a 10 hour shot from Dallas to St. Louis. 
So I was making about $1,000 a pound. And that's basically how I supported myself until um, I got arrested again in St. Louis and they matched up my prints and, uh, you know, extradited me back to Virginia. Wow. That's insane. Did you watch the Crypto King documentary yet on Netflix? No, I haven't yet. I kind of I, I kind of I, I did like a, I watched the trailer, you know, and yeah. I, I kind of marked it. I put it on my list because I want to watch it. I haven't had time. Yeah, but it looks interesting. Yeah, I'm curious. I'm curious to know what you think after you watch it, if you think he's still alive or not. And I watched the White Boy Rick um, documentary. It really broke my heart. And those stories like that really upset me because I've dated people that have been in and out of the system. And it's just really upsetting because it's a different type of lifestyle you have once you're in there between like gladiator fights and everything. And to be that young locked up, did he ever readjust to society properly? Oh, Rick. Yeah. 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 Rick, Rick's good, man. You know, Rick's out now. So I, yeah. you know, I talked to Rick a lot. Yeah. So, so Rick's doing good. You know, he has a, a you know, he got back together with a, a old girlfriend that he had like in high school, you know, and they're together. And um, he just does a lot of events. He does a lot of charitable events. He has a weed brand now called the eighth, you know, that he promotes. So he goes to a lot of the cannabis conventions and he's pretty much between, uh, you know, like Detroit and, and Miami, you know, and he just he does a lot of promotional stuff. Ton of, he does a ton of charity work. You know, he, he's really big on, on charity stuff for helping, you know, underprivileged kids, you know, and then helping people, you know, coming out of prison and stuff like that. Yeah, that's super important. I think reintegrating back into society. There was a movie, I think, oh God, I want to keep forgetting the name of it. It was with an R and I forgot the actor's name in it, uh, but it was about a guy who was trying to readjust into society after being wrongly accused of murder. Um, and it just shows that whole struggle, you know, of like trying to get back out there. And I don't think there are enough programs in society, like out there for people once they're, you know, back out, you know, back in society. What do you think is the, the best way? What do you you think there's a good program to help people? Or you think of starting something like that to help people integrate back into normal life once they're out of prison? Because that seems really tough. Yeah, no. You know, I, I do think, you know, that's what I always said, like when I was in, like, you know, pe- the government, you know, be it the state or the feds, you know, they want to give you a lot of time. And especially in the feds, it's a lot of first time nonviolent offenders. I mean, there's some violent people in there. And, you know, I, I know a lot of the, you know, I was friends with a lot of those dudes. And, and some of those guys, I mean, they're kind of like psychopaths. So, you know, they might belong, but that's a very small percentage. You know, that's like two, three percent. You know, most most of the dudes, especially in the feds, were, were nonviolent drug dealers. And I always said when I was in there, they didn't really give you the tools because even I took the college courses. I got three college degrees. I got an AA, a BA and a master's degree through correspondence. But my parents paid for that. You know, the, the prisons didn't offer that. So, you know, they, they they basically just warehouse men and women. They don't really give you the tools you need, you know, when you get out to succeed. I mean, I was just lucky that my parents had the money, you know, to pay for the college courses. And I was also lucky that I had the ambition and will to do what I did. But, you know, I'm, I'm like a very uh, serious self-starter. You know, I take the initiative, you know, I jump out there. So that makes me different from a lot of other people. But maybe if they had those options, maybe they would take them. But, um, yeah, definitely they need to do something. So that, that I try to kind of show, by example, I still correspond with a lot of people in prison you know, through like JPay and, and, and core links, like the email systems they have now, you know, people write me all the time, you know, I, on, on social media, like a lot of people, when they first get out, 
you know, I talk to them and, uh, you know, I just try to lead by example, you know, and show them, okay, yeah, I did 21 years, but you know, I'm out here now. I got a movie on Netflix. I got six other projects, you know, in development, you know, where there's a will, there's a way, you know, but you have to go out there and get it. You know, everybody talks about, oh, you have to be humble, you know, play your position, do this. No, you know, I'm a, I'm a big proponent, man. If, if you want something, you got to go out and get it. You got to let people know what you want and, and you got to basically grab it. I mean, because, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, there, there's a lot of things wrong with our country. But, uh, you know, one of the biggest things, the biggest things about America is, I mean, you can you can succeed, you know, if, if you have the drive, if you have the ambition, you know, you can go from having nothing to having a lot. You know, that's a big thing about this country. That's why so many people come to this country because other countries, you can't do that. You know, it's, it's hard to get property. It's all locked in. It's hard to start businesses. So, I mean, you can do that here. So that's what I just tell people, man. I say, you know, I figured out my way. Nobody taught me anything. You know, I mean, I got the college degree and learned how to write, but all my writing, my journalism, my books, I figured all that out. I read other books. I followed other people's examples. You know, I, I found people that were doing stuff, you know, and I just kind of, uh, made my own way. And I can see a lot with, you, you know, with your career too, you kind of made your own way, you know, with everything you've done and, and have made, you know, and to have the life that you have now. So I, I look at that, you know, that, that's the thing about this country, man. You, you see a lot of people, you know, that come from all different walks of life, all different places, but, you know, they, they make their own way. And it's just about uh, believing in yourself. And it's about, you know, staying relentless. I tell people all the time, I say, I'm not the most talented writer. You know, I'm not the best looking guy. You know, I'm not the, uh, you know, the best director, the best producer. I'm not the best at anything. You know, I'm pretty, I'm pretty good at a lot of things, you know, but um, my number one attribute is uh, I'm relentless. You know, I don't give up. I keep going. You know, I decide what I want. I decide when I want to do and, and I complete stuff. I finish stuff. And, uh, you know, I think my body of work kind of speaks for itself. Yeah. And you do have quite a lot of stuff out there. What do you have in the works right now? I heard something about a comic book from a little birdie the other day. Yeah. So, you know, when I first got out, we started this thing uh, called crime comics and um, we were just putting out like individual issues, but we do have this, uh, this comp, this it's, it's a lucky, lucky Luciana graphic novel that this writer, Christian Cipollone, Cipollone, he wrote it and um, I'm publishing it. Uh, through Gorilla Convict. And we've been working on that for a while, you know, and, it, and it's about to come out, you know, so that, that's a big achievement because with the comic book world, it's hard, man, because it's mostly like, you know, superheroes and stuff like that. So we're kind of doing this new thing. But um, I mean, it's new for now, but it, it's actually not new because in the 50s, 40s and 50s, like crime comics were really, really huge, you know, and then uh, for whatever reason, they kind of went away. So we're kind of trying to bring this crime comics back you know, and uh, Lucky Luciano is going to be the first graphic novel that we put out. Yeah, I'm excited about that. I have the book and I've always liked, you know, the whole underworld growing up as a child. Now, I, I kind of think I might know the answer to this, but how do you have not become um, an activist for psychedelics and expanding the mind? What do you think you would have done? Like, what was your aspiration as a kid growing up? Oh man, I wanted to be a rock star. That I mean, that was kind of my biggest goal. You know, I want I wanted to be a rock star. I mean, I, I played in bands really up up until I got busted. You know, not not nothing really serious. You know, but I mean, I I was always playing in a band, so you know, I always had that idea. 
You know, I was one of those kids in high school where I had that dream, like, you know, I wanted to go out to L.A. and do what a lot of my heroes did. But, you know, it, it was weird because I kind of got into the drugs and I started selling drugs. And um, that kind of made me like a rock star in a way, you know. And, and so I think it was easier. You know, it wasn't as challenging, you know, like, you know, the odds of being a successful drug dealer are uh, better, you know, than being a successful rock star. So I kind of I kind of went in that direction and I kind of got a lot of the stuff, you know, that I was looking for, you know, like, you know, money, recognition, you know, girls, you know, drugs, you know, being the life of the party and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, I really jumped into that. But really, even at the early age, like at 19, before I got busted, I, I was kind of like I wanted to become a cash millionaire. You know, that was kind of like my goal. And like I say, I, you know what it took a while, but. I mean, even, even at 18, 19 years old, I was probably making like 25, 30 grand a month, you know, off of, off of weed and psychedelics. I was supplying 15 colleges in five States, you know, with, with weed and LSD. So, um, you know, I, I felt like I was on the way, but the only thing I never took into consideration was, uh, you know, the whole war on drugs, you know, the war on drugs basically started like the end of the eighties you know, with, uh, you know, our, our president now, Joe Biden, who's basically like the father of mass incarceration, who wrote all these laws, you know, which he, you know, a lot of people don't see that, but I don't know how they don't see that. They, they uh, you know, don't look at history, but, um, you know, I, I didn't know about all this, you know, war on drugs thing. So, you know, when it kind of hit me, you know, in conspiracy laws and all that, you know, it, it was, it was kind of a shock, you know, especially, you know, as a, a young 22 year old man, when I got caught and like your own country gives you 25 years for a first time nonviolent offense for drugs that are basically like either legal or on their way to le legality now. So, you know, but whatever, you know, I, I, I think I've done uh, I've done a lot. You know, I've made the best of a bad situation. And, uh, you know, here I am now, you know, I'm, I'm on the cusp of, uh, you know, I got six projects, documentary projects in motion right now that'll be coming out in, in the next 12 months or so. So, you know, I feel like I'm in a good space and, and everything you do makes you who you are today. So, you know, I just try to keep it moving forward. Yeah. I mean, that's the best outlook you can have. You don't sound bitter by any means at all. And there are a lot of people that write books about um, criminals and Christian is cool. He's like in his own, he's in like his own category. I don't, I don't include him in this, but I, I think a lot of people that write these books either wish that they were one of them or they just do it from a totally different standpoint where they don't really romanticize uh, criminals. And mm -hmm. I like your, um, your whole take on it. What are your thoughts on most crime biographies that are written? I don't, I mean, I, I think a lot of the writers, I mean, they're drawn to that stuff. So I think, you know, they're passionate, they're into it. But, you know, at the same time, I, I think it can be a little bit uh, exploitive because they're just looking for like the sensational headline, except, you know, what I try to do, what I've always done in my writing, you know, especially because, uh, you know, I, I kind of tell people like, you know, like out here is, is like the matrix, right? So, you know, everybody's plugged into the matrix and, you know, whatever. I mean, if that's what you want to do, that's what you want to do. I mean, I, I like the matrix too out here. But when you're in prison, when you're, you're like on the other side, you're like, you're not in the matrix. So you see things you know, in a totally different way. So I, I always tried to tell the stories, you know, to humanize people, you know, even the gangsters, all the gangsters, you know, African-American mobsters, you know, uh, gangbangers that, that I've written about, you know, I try to humanize and show the human size because 
a lot of these people, I mean, like I said, there's always a two, 3% that are psychopaths, you know, but a lot of them, I mean, they're just people, they're in these situations, you know, and they had to do these, a lot of these things, but it's a lot of gray area. It's not always black and white, you know, and, and law enforcement and, um, you know, criminal, criminal justice people in their country. And, and even a lot of writers, they, they try to make it, you know, seem like, you know, it's, it's all black and white. Like these people are evil or they're this or that. You got to look at all the circumstances. Like how did the people get to where they were? You know, how were they brought up? So I try to, I try to look at all that in my writing. But uh, yeah, I'm, I think really since, uh, you know, I got out around 2015, that's kind of like when the making a murderer blew up. So really the whole true crime thing, you know, opened a lot of doors to me because um, that's how I got into docs. Cause I had so much stuff that I'd written about that a, a lot of people making documentaries kept coming to me and they wanted me to talk on their documentaries. And after I did that about two times, I kind of saw how they were doing it, you know, cause the first film I wanted to do film, but like you think film, Oh, it's this expensive or how do you shoot? How do you edit? How do you do all this stuff? You know, that's a lot of stuff to learn. So uh, you got to have a big team to do film. So once I saw, you know, I was on two or three sets and I saw how they were doing it. I kind of was like, man, I can do this. You know, it's not that hard. You just like anything. You just got to have the right people, you know, and I already knew how to tell a story. I'm already a storyteller. You know, I, I writ, I wrote like, you know, 20 something books while I was in prison. So, you know, actually getting out and, and being able to kind of take these stories from the written word, you know, to the screen. It's been a learning process for me, but it's also been really exciting. And at the same time, you know, I'm, I'm not the typical writer, you know, like, you know, I, I can go, you know, I, I was in prison. I heard stories that these writers are never going to hear. You know what I'm saying? And plus I experienced, you know, life as an outlaw, you know, which a lot of these writers, you know, and I'm not blaming them. I mean, you know, if they're passionate about, they like this stuff, they can write it about it. But, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, a lot of these writers, you know, never had the balls to do the stuff that I did, you know, so they can write about it or, you know, talk about it or, you know, spin some prose about it but i mean they don't really know what it's about you know they're, they're just kind of you know writing what they think they know or, or spinning the story how they want yeah know? that's so true it's like they live vicariously through things you may have done or may not have done which brings me to another thing um i knew someone who was in adelanto when they first opened up years ago what exactly like is it true they have gladiator fights where you have the prison guards like betting on which guy is going to kill the other one yeah, I, I've never experienced that personally, but, you know, I, I've heard about that, you know, in different places, especially when you get in those higher, those like the super maxes, you know, like in, in California or, uh, you know, like ADX in Colorado. So, yeah, I've, I've heard about that stuff. And I think um, a lot of time, I don't, I don't know if it's for boredom. I don't know if it's to, uh, you know, curry favor with the prisoners. But, you know, a lot, a lot of prisoners, man, when you're in there, you know, and, and you don't really have nothing to do and you're just scheming and you're trying to get power and it's all about who's this guy or who's that guy. So, I mean, that's what these guys live for, you know, these kind of criminal uh, prison gangsters, you know. And, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's sad that people have to live with this, but, you know, that's kind of all they have. All they have is, like, you know, their reputation. All they have is, like, uh, you know, these murders or notches on their belt. You know, and that's kind of like what they live for because they want to be like, you know, the baddest dude. And in, and, it, and like I say, I'm not going to knock them. I mean, if you're in that world, you know, if you're in prison, you kind of got to be like that. I've changed a lot since I came home. You know, how I how I was in prison and how I am now, you know, I completely changed my mindset. Because if you go around, 
with that criminal convict mindset that you develop in prison, you know, it's, it's not going to serve you out here. You know, it's just going to serve to take you right back to prison. That's why we have these high recidivism rates because people learn to survive, you know, inside the belly of the beast and, and inside this netherworld of corruption and violence, you know, which we've created in this country through mass incarceration. And then they come out and, and, and all these attributes, you know, that let them survive and this mindset that let them survive in prisons, it's, it doesn't function in the world. You know, so that's why a lot of people go back, you know, so I really had to kind of change my mindset. I mean, I was personally never involved in like gladiator fights or something, but, you know, in prison, I am, I fought a lot. You know, you have to fight. If you're a man, you know, if somebody comes at you, you got to do what you got to do. You know, I mean, you know, not anything that I'm proud of or like, you know, I'm the, the baddest dude or whatever, but, you know, I was lucky that I was never involved in nothing super serious, you know, where, where it got involved, like, you know, you know, vendettas or life or death things. But uh, yeah, I, I played sports in there and, and I got a lot of fights. You know, I got, my nose has probably been broken like five times. You know, I got, I got scars, you know, on my head here. I got scars here where my shit got split open. You know, but like I say, if you fight in there, usually that's how you get your respect. You know, so if people know you fight, even if you lose, you know, if people know you fight, you know, uh, they're going to go to somebody different because, you know, you might be able to beat my ass nine times out of 10, but there might be that one time where I get that lucky punch and I knock you out, you know, and then it, it, it's whatever. So, you know, you just gotta, uh, you just gotta kind of roll with it. And I think a lot of the people that kind of thrive on that chaos and, and thrive on that violence, once they find out that you're going to stand up for yourself, they're going to go to an easier mark. Yeah, that's so true. And Getting back to the whole prison reform, I agree with you wholeheartedly because right now we're in this situation where people who sell drugs, get busted for it, are in jail for such a long time where they get these heavy sentences, but yet there are real like murderers and rapists out in the street. About a week ago, a 14-year-old girl was raped by a guy who jumped the border several times and kept coming up over and over again, and she was raped. They took him in, but I think they let him out already. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, I, you know, I, I don't know, you know, you might see the movies, but really when you're in like, uh, you know, basically like the snitches, you know, the rapists or the people that beat women and the child molesters. I mean, those are the dudes. That's the bottom of the food chain in prison. And, um, you know, it's, it's a higher like like if you're in a medium or high security prison, like those dudes, like they don't walk, you know, like they're not allowed to walk the yard. You know, once you, if you find out, that's why they do, they, they have paperwork parties. They do paperwork checks. And when they find out, you know, that they, they beat those dudes down. Sometimes they kill them, but, you know, they beat them down and they don't let them, you know, they, they tell like the prison authorities, like, no, nah, that dude can't come on the shark. You yeah, know, well, so yeah. a lot of dudes, yeah, a lot of dudes that have those cases, they, they try to keep it on the down low because they don't want people to know, you know, because if people find out, you know, in prison. So it's weird, you know, even, even though you, you have all this, uh, you know, violence and, and these different kind of uh, death before dishonor and these different codes. That's like the one weird code, you know, that I kind of I kind of respect from prison because, you know, I do think, you know, I mean, whatever. I mean, a, a snitch is going to snitch. People talk anyhow. You know, I think that's more how the laws were made, you know, threatened all the time. But, yeah, definitely anybody, you know, you do anything to women or kids. I mean, you should definitely get everything that, that's coming to you and worse. No, I agree. Absolutely. And these times in California, it's a lot of people taking the laws into their own hands. So Gavin Newsom released like a bunch of prisoners into the streets. 
I'm telling my girlfriend, no, it's not like the guy you saw in shot collar. That's an actor. This is not what he's putting into the streets. And you, it's just like these people that are have like sex offenses and stuff like that on their records. And they're just out there roaming the streets, like living their best lives ever. Uh, but you've definitely made a lot happen for yourself. And I heard that when you were in jail first, yeah, the first place you went, you came into contact with Los Sorenos. What was that like? Oh, yeah. You know, because um, I, I was at FCI Manchester in Kentucky. It was, it was a medium high facility um, in the Bureau of Prisons. And, you know, like when you come in, everybody, you know, the first thing they ask you, they're like, where are you from? Where are you from? You know, I, I was born in Lamore, California, which is, is a central coast between L.A. and San Diego. You know, I grew up in San Diego and I grew up in, in San Jose, you know, and I spent a lot of time in, in Northern California. You know, that's where my dad's from. And, you know, so when I went in, they asked me, like, they're like, where are you from? Where are you from? Even though my case was from Virginia, I said, you know, I'm from California, you know, so immediately you know, they go tell the other California dudes and the only other California dudes on the compound are like the Serenos, which are like the, you know, the Southsiders, you know, the, the gang, Mexican gangbangers, you know, who are under the Mexican mafia. So immediately, you know, there, there's a few of them on the compound. So they come right to me, you know, like, Hey homeboy, what's up? Because when you're in there, it's like, uh, you know, it's like your own, your own homeboys. They're the ones that kind of check your paperwork and determine if you're going to walk the yard or not. So they came and they did a little paperwork party. I told them about my case. You know, I showed them, you know, my PSI, my sentencing transcripts, you know, so they could check to make sure I'm not a rat. You know, I'm not a pedophile. I'm not a rapist, you know, or, or a domestic abuser or stuff like that. So then, you know, I, I was, you know, right, like 22, you know, I really would look like a little college kid. And uh, I'm kind of, you know, walking the yard with these uh, Mexican gangbangers. And it, it's weird because uh, those guys are Serenos. I, I guess it's from maybe from the California system and the Mexican mafia, but they're they're like the most feared dudes, like in the feds, like on most of the yards. And I'm I'm like walking the yard, like I'm I'm like basically green, you know, just came in the system, and I'm walking the yard with these dudes, and and they kind of really they taught me how to do time, they taught me how to carry myself, and more importantly, I think, uh, I mean, really, I, they they taught me how to be a man, you know, behind the fences because. When I came in, I, I was 22. You know, I grew up in the suburbs. You know, I was a military brat. You know, I was probably uh, a little entitled, you know, a little spoiled. You know, my parents weren't rich by any means, but we were definitely middle class, you know. So, you know, coming into this world and, and, and kind of learning, you know, the ropes and the convict mentality, you know, and, and how to live life in, in, in prison. You know, these guys, they really kind of taught me a lot you know, cause they kind of took me under their wing. Cause I was, I was like their little homeboy. And, and, you know, I even had more time than most of them, you know, they were kind of amazed, but you know, they, they, they taught me how to act and, and, and carry myself and, uh, you know, taught me, you know, whatever, you know, you, you can be nice and polite, but at the same time, you got to be assertive and you got to draw that line. And if somebody steps over that line, you got to do what you got to do as a man. Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting. I, uh, I watch a lot of those movies and a lot of the documentaries. One thing I do notice is in Europe, I lived in Norway for quite some time and they have a different way of, um, how should I say it? Incarcerating people who are murderers or drug offenders. So you actually get like a cell phone at one point that you could use. You're allowed to go on the computer like a few hours a week. And then finally they put you into a small, uh, like your own little house off of the, uh, the prison compound. And the most a murderer could do there is 10 years. So I'm hoping we get some kind of prison reform going here that's a lot better that stops people from doing um, committing the same crime again and better sentencing guidelines for uh, 
for drug offenders, you know, nonviolent. Definitely. So if people want to see your movies or your documentaries or learn way more about you than they have now, where can they go? Yeah, I got a website. Um, it's called gorillaconvict.com. It's also linked to my name, like sethferrante.com. So that has like all my books. It, um, it has like the trailers for the, the uh, documentaries coming out. Like I said, I got a project, Nightlife, coming out. It's about a group of violence interrupters in uh, North St. Louis. You know, that's, that's going to be coming out soon. I got this other uh, one about the mafia and heroin called Dope Men that, I, that I've been working on with Christian Cipollini and another writer, mob writer named Scott Bernstein. So that's going to be coming out. I got a docu-series about Humboldt County called Tangled Roots, you know, which is kind of like, you know, Humboldt County has been, uh, you know, historically known as the, uh, the mecca, you know, for marijuana you know, in the United States supplying up to, you know, 60% of the domestic gross product, like in the eighties and nineties before legalization. I got another uh, LSD film called psychedelic revolution, which is a three part series. We're actually previewing the, uh, the first 25 minutes of the film and doing a panel on bicycle day coming up uh, 419 at the midway in San Francisco. So that's, that's going to be cool. And, uh, you know, I, I got all like the, the icons, like I got, um, like Hamilton Morris is going to be there from Hamilton Pharmacopoeia. He's in the film. Roni Stanley, who was Bear Owsley Stanley's wife. You know, he's like a famous underground criminal. She's going to be there. Uh, Carolyn Mountain Gar- Girl Garcia, who was a merry prankster and the wife of Jerry Garcia. She's going to be there. Leonard Picard, who was a famous underground chemist who had life and, and just got out during COVID, you know, because of his advanced age. And uh, Timothy Tyler, who actually had a life sentence for LSD and got pardoned by Obama in 2018. These are all people in the film and they're all going to be there, uh, you know, in the panel. So that's going to be cool. And um, I'm doing this NDA MDMA project too on uh, this crew called the Atlanta Southside boys that were actually uh, like their predecessors were the Dixie mafia, you know, but these were like, you know, the next generation in the nineties and they had this big ecstasy ring you know, that stretched from Atlanta all the way down to uh, Panama City. And, you know, they all did like, you know, 15, 20 years and they're, they've all, you know, gotten out recently. So I'm, I'm doing a, a documentary on them. And the, the final six project that I'm working on is uh, it's called Idiot Savant. And it's about this guy, Ryan Leone. And he was basically this real talented writer. You know, he's been in and out of prison, you know, suffers a lot from uh, PTSD, from being in prison, struggles with drug addiction, you know, mental illness. But still, he's this incredibly uh, talented and charismatic person and, um, you know, writer and, and, and kind of entertainer. He has like a real big YouTube channel now, you know, and, and, and he does a lot of stuff on Patreon. But I, I made this documentary about them that kind of you know, tells his story and, and, you know, his struggles, you know, with prison and, and, and drug addiction and mental illness. That is so, that's amazing. I don't know how you find time to actually breathe, but that's awesome. I do know that they have weed wars up in Humboldt County or, or someone I met, a writer, he said that they had a TV series. I think it's out now, but just about the weed wars that go on up there. Is that actually a thing? People actually get hurt over marijuana? Yeah, I think, um, more in the past, you know, I mean, uh, you know, especially like with the Prop 215 and a lot of people went up there, you know, to grow and you go back to the 80s because you got to think at one time the, the marijuana they were going up there was going for like 5,000 a pound. But, um, you know, now the, the docuseries I'm doing, that's kind of what it's about. It, it tells a history, you know, because 
it's crazy to me that this thing, like before legalization, it was going for 5,000 a pound. And now that same weed is only going for like 500 a pound. So I, I'm telling the story in the Tangled Roots docuseries about the legacy farmers. So it's, it's a people, they're like second, third generation, you know, they, their families have been there. They, they've been growing weed, you know, since like the late sixties, early seventies. And um, yeah, I, I, all kinds of stuff, get it because you know, all types of stuff goes on up there. Cause when you get people on meth and Coke, you know, anything is possible, but the people that I'm doing the show on, I'm kind of trying to show, you know, they, they're kind of like the, uh, you know, the, the, the hippie cowboys, you know, I call them like hip necks. And, um, I mean, they, they basically came like their parents or their grandparents are, are the people from the 60s that just kind of fucked off, you know, and like we're going to go out in the mountains and they didn't even go up in the mountains to grow weed. They just went up in the mountains to kind of get away from society and growing weed was just a byproduct of being there. And then, you know, in the 80s, this weed that they started growing became real, you know, high demand known as kind buds. So uh, I think my show is kind of you know, it's kind of like the anti-Murder Mountain because they have this show about Humboldt about Murder Mountain and, you know, they kind of use like the clickbait, like the murders and all this stuff. And, uh, you know, so so I'm, I'm trying to show like the people, like the outlaws that have been there, you know, and, and they're good people, man. And, and they kind of stood up for this plan and championed this plant, you know, and some of them got in prisons, you know, they had all the helicopters there, you know, terrorizing their families, you know, so, so I'm kind of telling the story from that perspective you know, now that we're in this, uh, you know, kind of national thing of, of legalization, you know, for, for a plant that should have been legal the whole time. I agree wholeheartedly. Yeah. I mean, it's out there already. That's good. You are uh, definitely a great example of anyone could do anything they want to in life. Like if you said, if someone wanted to make a million dollars and like, I heard your story, I would honestly think I can go out there and make a million dollars or 10 million or something like that. Legally, yeah. No, it's just it's just it's just about networking, man. It's it's about jumping out there because I think, uh, you know, really, it's it's relationships. I think you put yourself in a, a place to make more money with the more relationships and the more people you know, you know. Because I mean, everybody's always sitting around waiting for somebody to discover them or for somebody to put them on, and you know that's gonna that's not gonna happen. I mean, you got to go out there and you got to make stuff happen, and not only you got to make stuff happen. But you got to produce, man, because, you know, if you just go out there, talk about everything, you know, talk is cheap. You know, you, you got to produce stuff. You got to make stuff. You got to do stuff, be it events, appearances, you know, podcasts, writing books, making documentaries, you know, acting, acting in movies, whatever it is, you got to go do it. And, and like I say, what, you're going to be at different levels. You know, not, not everybody is, is going to be a Brad Pitt like off the bat, you know, I mean, Brad Pitt worked a lot to get to where he is. You know, so you, you got to look at that, man. It's all, it's all hard work. And, uh, but not only hard work, it's, it's, it's showing up and being where you're supposed to be and, and living up to your obligations and living up to your word and, and forming these relationships, you know, be them working relationships or whatever to get to where you want to be. Yeah. It's not just thinking about it and putting it out there in the world and sitting on your couch with like sweatpants, watching Netflix and chilling. It's about actually going out there and doing it. Well, thank you so much. It's been quite an honor. Uh, so don't forget to look Seth Ferranti up on the internet as well. And it's under gorilla. Convict.com. Or I'm on social media under my name, Seth Ferranti. So uh, yeah, there's a lot of stuff. So I mean, I, I got a lot of stuff on Google. But yeah, that's my website. You can check out all my books, uh, my comic books, all my forthcoming films. 
And then, uh, like I say, I do, I do a lot of public appearances. I do a lot of events. So, you know, I'm, I'm out there all the time. You know, I, I fly across, you know, crisscross the nation, you know, I travel a lot, you know, um, working and, and doing all these different events, you know, and promoting and marketing myself. Good. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate right. your time. Sorry, I-